Hey church, my name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders at Church in the Square. Let's open up God's word together. Please meet me in Romans chapter one. Romans chapter one, verse one. Romans is found after Acts, after the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and then Romans begins the New Testament. A couple of things as always before we jump into the text. Members gathering will be taking place on May 10th at 7 p.m. We'll have a Zoom call which will get you all the information, members, very soon so that we can pray together, we can talk about all that's going on in ways we can care for one another and really stay on mission together in the middle of COVID-19 as well. Um, Also, if you're not yet a member and like to be a member, please join us for our membership uh, class, which will be taking place on May 17th. Again, more information will be sent out for that Zoom call soon as well. So we're gonna continue in Romans verse one. We were at the very beginning of the verse last week, and now we'll look at the second of three different portions of the first verse in Romans that really Paul packs a lot and gives a lot of attention to in the way that he introduces himself to the first century Roman Christians. And particularly today, in the way that Paul describes himself, himself leads us into a consideration of mission, of what it means to be a people uh, individually, but a people together corporately as the church on mission. And so We want to talk about that today. What does it mean that we have a mission as a church, a purpose, something that we, a reason we exist for? You know, the the elders and I elected as we uh, just a couple of years ago started the journey at Church in the Square to not come up with a specific uh, mission statement per se, but really have allowed the scriptures like, like Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 and Mark 10 to really serve as our clarifying Uh, mission for us as a church. And so Matthew 28 says, ultimately, Jesus calls his disciples and those uh, around them that around those disciples in that initial community says, go therefore and make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded to obey all that I've commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then promises that I'll be, I'll be with you. So that seems to give us some clarity. And then also when we look at Acts chapter one, before Jesus' ascension, He essentially looks at them and he says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and lead you. He says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, is what he says, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And and lastly, Jesus in uh, Mark 10 gives real clarity to what the uh, second greatest commandment is, much like the first, the first being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, and so in that, we have this idea of going and making disciples. We have this idea of witnessing um, the, the work of Jesus and the story that we have to tell of encountering Jesus. And we also have sort of a summary, if you will, of all of that in loving our neighbor's as ourselves. And so in all of that, what we get real clarity about is what it means for us to exist as a church, what it is we exist for. And so it's good for us to think about that because I think it's really important then to wrestle with what does all that mean? What's what ought that uh, to look like? And, and really, what is this about the mission that can be challenging for you individually or for me individually. Because isn't it true that a lot of times, though we know those passages, we've heard them, they're familiar to many of us, why then don't we go? Why then don't we witness? Why then don't we love? Why is it that these vital impulses of the kingdom often fail us as a people? What's underneath that? Maybe many of us for a majority of our life have not participated in what we would describe as a mission or discipleship or evangelism or any way of extending beyond our own story of faith to others, perhaps believing that others are selected to do that or that, that impulse just never came to us. And so we've never actually participated with God's spirit in this. And so we wrestle with that. And I think really what's underneath that is some serious shame. See, in my experience in meeting with you all and meeting with brothers and sisters and just being friends and doing this life with you, and even in my own story, I don't think there's any hindrance to mission like shame. See, shame is really what we tell ourselves about ourselves, is that we tell ourselves that we're not called. We tell ourselves that we're not worthy. We tell ourselves that someone else has better 
gifts or stronger ability to do something. Some, someone's more righteous, someone's more loving, someone's more hospitable, someone's more eloquent, someone is more holy and, and is able to do the things that God would call them to do better than I could. In fact, probably every little moment of sin causes us to doubt whether or not we could ever be useful in the kingdom. And I believe this was on Paul's mind when he's writing Romans, this sort of preoccupation with self that comes from sin, this shamefulness, this introspection of looking at myself, of thinking that I'm not good enough, of thinking that I'm unworthy, of thinking that I've fallen short and stopping there and therefore not living out what God has called us to do. I think that's on Paul's mind as he's writing this letter to Roman Christians, likely in a number of different house churches spread throughout this first century city. And so last week we considered the power of the Greco-Roman culture and this idea of love of honor or philotemia, that that was really built within the fabric of the community, of the city, of the culture at large that pervaded well outside of the city limits uh, of Rome. And in direct contrast to this idea, Paul introduces himself as a slave. So instead of sort of cajoling to that kind of idea of honor, he actually brings great confrontation to it and calls himself a slave. And, And if we're not careful, when we read that Paul describes himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, we may think that ultimately he's sort of conceding that everyone is better than him that he ultimately uh, has sort of a low self-esteem and perhaps that he feels shame. And and let's be honest, if we really think about it, there, there are few Christians recorded in all of history who likely should have felt more shame than the Apostle Paul. He murdered people he now calls his brothers and sisters. And so if anyone would ever be haunted by unworthiness, haunted by unloveliness, haunted by a lack of credibility or a lack of an ability to go and witness and be on mission, it would be Paul. Paul would be the one that just says, somebody else better go. I used to kill these people. I can't now save people to become more like them, can I? And yet it's that guy who addresses the Roman Christians in a way that seems like shame has been completely stripped from him. Look with me at Romans chapter one, verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. See, not only does he seem to be without shame, he identifies with such a unique and significant class of New Testament ministers. He calls himself an apostle. He numbers himself along with this great host of witnesses who have been called and selected by Jesus himself commissioned by Jesus himself to go and witness, define the gospel, and to do works of gospel ministry. And so obviously the question for us is, someone like Paul calls himself this, is how in the world could this have happened? How could one who persecuted the church now become a preacher in the church? How could one who rejected Jesus now bow the knee to him as king? How could such a transformation take place? I hope that just even hearing that begins to sort of just team in your heart with, with hope and with joy and with goodness of the power of the grace of God. But that, that's the question. How could someone like this, the Apostle Paul who killed Christians, who is vehemently opposed to the church, now be writing, addressing himself, not only as a, as a slave of Christ Jesus, but an apostle of Christ Jesus, a called apostle of Christ Jesus. What could this mean for us? What could this mean for us as a church? What could this mean for you? What could this mean for us as a people? What could it mean for our city? If we could be witnesses, if we could go and tell, if we could demonstrate this kind of love to the people around us, that's my prayer. That's my hope that we would learn more of the grace of God in that today. So let's go to God in prayer and ask for his help in understanding this. Father, we come to you. We need your help. We ask that you would sharpen our minds uh, to to know the gospel, to to be clear about who you are and what you're like. But we also ask that you'd soften our hearts. Give us compassion. Give us empathy. Give us joy. Help us, Father, to to do really what the Apostle Paul has done just in his introduction of himself, to to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. We We are slaves of Christ Jesus. And yet, Father, embrace 
the dignifying role and responsibility that you have called us into by your grace to be ministers of reconciliation in this world as your kingdom comes and as your will is done. And so help me, Father, help me to be clear, help me to be responsible with your word because we need your word today. We don't need some thoughts of a preacher through a Zoom meeting or on some video. God, what we need is the God of the Bible, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the Apostle Paul, the God who became flesh in the Son, Jesus Christ. We, we need you, Lord, to speak to us because you have the words of eternal life. You have the words that lift us. You have the words that part the Red Sea. You have the words that create all things. You have the words and the power that brings the dead to life. And so, Father, we ask, that you'd speak to us now, that we might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We might live as holy sacrifices unto you. Oh God, would you do that? Father, help me. Take, take the words that I've done my best to prepare and listen to your voice, to write and rewrite, to read and reread and to think. But God, I lay all of this before you and ask that you would speak to your people. You would minister by your spirit, that you would bring about this great power of reconciliation that even now, Father, as some who hear these words, they would move from death to life from darkness to light, that for the very first time they would confess their sin and confess the lordship of Jesus who wipes away all of their sin and shame. So God, would you do that? And, and countless other things, Father, for your glory and our good, we ask in the mighty name of Jesus. Everybody agreed and said, amen. Shame is, is not a new thing. Shame has always been the reward of sin. Shame has always been the thing that lurks and sticks and stays with us long after we have made a mistake, long after we've rebelled against God, long after we have succumbed to temptation, long after we've sinned. Uh, professor and author Brene Brown, uh, prop, proper, popularly known as the, the godmother of shame, this is what has taken up the source and substance of her research work at the University of Houston, she popularly explains that shame and, and guilt are fundamentally different ideas, that guilt says I have done wrong and shame says I am wrong. It's the difference between acknowledging that an action I have done or an action that I failed to do is incorrect, is unrighteous, and it's out of step with the gospel. Shame, though, is doing something and then turning that, that, that wrong thing that I have done into a wrong status of who I am, a brokenness, a preoccupation within myself. And this is actually what's taken place in the garden. In Adam and Eve, our first parents, when they sin in, in the garden in Genesis chapter three, we get a real picture that, that sin sticks to them. It stays with them. You see, in, in Genesis chapter two, we're told that after the, the first couple gets married, after their wedding ceremony, they were naked and unashamed. One of the brilliant gifts of the, the joy and harmony of this marital relationship is complete and utter, utter vulnerability and not an ounce of shame, not an ounce of preoccupation, not an ounce of, of fear of rejection, not an ounce of, of believing they will be um, disregarded or dismissed by their spouse, but fully embraced, fully known, and fully loved. They're completely vulnerable, they're completely naked, and they are unashamed. And yet what we're told, knowing this kind of in the backdrop of the story, what we're told in Genesis chapter three, that when Adam and Eve do take of the only fruit of the tree of the garden, that God said, you're not supposed to eat that one, not from the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When they take of that, one of the first things that happens is that they realize they're naked. They realize that they are naked. Something that there was no fear, no shame, complete intimacy. Now there's this preoccupation. Now they can't get past the fact that they're fully exposed, that they're fully known by the other. So something happens with, within the mind, within the heart, where now this darkness creeps into their heart and fear shows up in their story. We, we know that it's more than just a passing thought because the next scene after they sin is a really quick one. But if we take some time to think about it, we realize it couldn't have been that quick. 
You see, what Adam and Eve do after they sin is they, they make loincloths for themselves out of fig leaves. Now think about that. They had never worn clothes before, let alone made clothes before. This would have taken time. They, they would have had to go and find the materials. They, they would have had to take measurements because they'd never taken their measurements before to even know what they needed to make or what they needed to put on. And, and they had to stitch it together. And with every stitch, they were making a decision. With every stitch, they were making a decision to not go to God, but to sit in their shame. They were making a decision to not live in the light, but to stay in the dark and even construct, build, weave together little bits of darkness to cover themselves. This is a significant departure from what their existence had been. Think about it, church. Adam and Eve walked with the Lord. Adam and Eve had conversations with God. They asked him questions and he answered them. They probably laughed together. They had inside jokes. They had intimacy. They had pure and unadulterated relationship with the God of the universe. He walked them through the garden and taught them and showed them why he made all that he made. Yet, despite all of that, despite all of that intimacy, despite all of that joy and union and beauty and love and affection, the moment they sin, they hide themselves. They hide themselves from each other. They hide themselves from God. Because you see, when God starts walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which we read about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, they, they find something to hide behind. See, the clothes weren't enough. They didn't just want to hide their bodies from God. They wanted to hide their faces. They didn't want to make eye contact. Because isn't it true that when we're in shame, the last thing we want to do is to look someone in the eye and for have, to have someone look us in the eye, to be completely exposed in that kind of way. And Genesis 3 gives us the record then of God uh, delivering scathing consequence because of the sin of Adam and Eve. There's incredible separation. They're, they're extinguished, or rather they are um, excused from the garden. They're kicked out of the garden. They no longer have that fellowship relationship within the confines of the paradise that God had made for them. Consequences were severe. And yet the way that the consequences were delivered to Adam and Eve are a safeguard, if you will, from the fullness of those consequences from coming upon them. You see, God showed up. God drew near to Adam and Eve in the garden. God drew near to Adam and Eve in the middle of their sin. See, Adam and Eve spent all of their time in their sin, in their shame, trying to create distance between themselves and God, all the while God was closing the gap. This is who God is. God has always been a God who was sent, who had the sentness about him that he comes to us. The fundamental difference between every other worldview, every other religion, every other concept of the divine is that the God of the Bible is the only one who comes to his creation. He is not waiting for his creation to find their way to him. He is the God who always comes to us. And he comes to us in our darkest moments. He comes to us in the middle of our shame. He comes to us in the brokenness of our sin. You see, this sentness of God is felt through generations of the Christian story. See, Adam and Eve destroyed, lost, and then they sat in their sin and shame. And the Lord has been, and, and therefore ever since, has been reclaiming what was destroyed in his creation. The story of the Bible in its most elemental aspect is the story of a God who is reclaiming what he has created, who is putting back together what sin has destroyed, what shame has ravaged. God is bringing back, redeeming, recreating his world. The creation, which was devastated then by sin and shame in the garden, is now the creation that God is remaking through the power of his son, through the power of his spirit, through the work of his church by his kingdom. And this is the message of Romans. 
the Apostle Paul is writing not simply about the justification of an individual soul by grace through faith. That's really what's covered in the first five chapters. For the remainder of Romans, what Paul wants his readers to understand, the weight, if you will, of Romans is this divine picture of a God who is faithful and a God who is loving, who is reinstilling and reinstating and reclaiming his people for himself through a new creation, a kingdom that is not of this world. And that kind of message was coming directly against the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire thought that they would reclaim or really claim for the first time the known world by power and might and honor. Here comes the Apostle Paul saying, I am a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. This world is being reclaimed through the cross, not through violence and self-glory. This is the amazing thing about who our God is is that the work he began in the garden and the work that is recounted that he continues to perform through the scriptures is the work that he is now still doing by his spirit, through his son, in his church, in the nature of his kingdom, in accordance with the kingdom of Jesus. See, it is through Jesus that all shall be well, not the Roman Empire, not the United States of America. It is through the kingdom of Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul is writing about. See, Paul knew this project and plan. He knew God. He'd met him. God had drawn near to Paul on that road to Damascus. This is how then a man who used to kill Christians is now not only becomes a Christian, but then is, is making new Christians. He's going. He's making disciples. He's loving his neighbor. See, God has always been a missional God. He has always been the God who goes after his people. And the Apostle Paul is one of his primary pictures of his grace, that God has reclaimed the life of the Apostle Paul. So therefore, it is not a mistake that Paul then identifies himself who is, as one who is a beneficiary of grace, as one who is called by the sheer grace of God. Look again, Romans 1, verse 1. Let's make sure that it's in our hearts and minds. Paul, an apostle, or rather a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. Paul actually says two things about himself here. He says that he is called and he says that he is an apostle. The first designation is a special, is is rather not a special invitation granted only to spiritual elites, perhaps like we might think Paul is. But calling rather is this gracious invitation that the Lord extends to all of his people to join him by his invitation, by his merit, by his great grace to join him in the renewal of all things and the reclaiming of the world. This was something that Paul believed down to the depths of his being. And he took time in Romans chapter 12, turn there with me, to explain what exactly that meant for Paul's readers, what that then means for us as the 21st century church as well. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 through 8 For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Continually, Paul is coming after this this Roman love of honor, that it's not about your own honor, but about sober judgment, right? In verse four, for as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. See, by God's grace, we are all called. I hope you picked up on that. The distinction in different ways that God calls his people to do the work together, many members as one body, as Paul will also write in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, all of us in this together with different roles. See, even right now, you may sit there and say, I don't, I, I, I don't even know what it is I'm supposed to do. It's passages like this 
Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that help us to understand that we have not been left out of God's design and the way that he is implementing the renewal of all things and of bringing his kingdom to, to invade right here and right now in this world. He's given you gifts, he's given me gifts, and we're supposed to use those for his glory. It's a good thing to be curious about it. It's a good thing to ask and to even uh, step out in faith in different ways. And I've seen many of you especially during the COVID-19 situation, many of you using the ways in which God has gifted and called you to be used by him to make much of Jesus in the way that you love neighbor, witness Jesus in the different spaces that you call home and work and in the way, just even having your being in our neighborhood and city. Some of you in your Spanish speaking ability have used that gift, that calling to extend care and love to our neighbors. Some, some of you have given financially in order that we might continue to be witnesses together. Some of you have used your technological gifts to help uh, students get laptops set up. Others of you have been praying regularly for your brothers and sisters, gathering together as a church or praying individually. And those prayers and that, that technological ability and that Spanish speaking ability and that generous giving, all of that is the calling that God has bestowed upon your life to do the work of the kingdom right here and right now. See, we're all called. We are all called by God's grace, but we're not all apostles. See, Paul has this unique calling along with others in the early church that Paul is specifically claiming here as his apostolic ministry. The word in the original language is the word apostolos. And apostolos means it's someone who is sent or a messenger. Paul's task then was that he was divinely selected by Jesus, but also he was divinely selected to be sent, to be sent as a messenger with a particular task and a particular purpose. Now, Paul and, and all of the apostles, namely the 12 disciples, each of the synoptic writers attribute the word apostle to the 12 uh, disciples too. So Paul identifies himself with, with those men, but they even collectively are identified with a longer lineage, a, a much more robust heritage of men and women who have been called to be messengers. See, in the Old Testament, there was a tradition uh, that was described as a shaliak, a person who was a messenger who was given a word to deliver to a particular person. They were commissioned by a person to represent them, to represent them in word, but also in action. And the, the Mishnah, which is a, a Jewish oral tradition, makes it so clear that the person who was going for, so the person who is the messenger, was seen not just as one who was delivering the message, but was seen as if that person was showing up in the flesh. And so the representative nature of a shaliak was not just this person is here for them. Treat this moment like that person is here, like the sender has been sent right here. And so that messenger represented so much more than a word to deliver, but represented in power, in incarnation, in the flesh, in that moment, the person who sent them. In fact, this was so legally binding that a shaliak could divorce or marry someone for someone else. I mean, think, think about that. You think it's passive aggressive when someone texts you like a breakup text or something like that. Like, can you even imagine? Which by the way, don't text each other that. Fellas, if you're texting a girl in that kind of way, like repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. You should not be texting breakups like that. Right now, you should at least be doing Zoom, I guess, or get six feet apart, whatever. I, I digress. But a shaliak could divorce or marry someone in the flesh. And can you imagine that? Someone going, yo, I promise, I'm representing someone else. It's going to legit be a marriage for them, but here, here I am. I think that gives us a picture of how powerful this idea was. That a messenger was not just giving a word, but a messenger was representing a person. And it's that tradition not only from the Mishnah, but also the Old Testament. Because you see, Moses was considered a shaliak. Uh, Isaiah also, and Jeremiah was. Abraham, all given this distinction of a messenger. And this tradition carries on all the way to the New Testament because in the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, the word that was used for shaliak was the word apostelos. 
And so the word for apostle is substituted for that same idea from the old on into the new. And so the consistency here is that these apostles who were commissioned directly by Jesus, given a word by Jesus, given a purpose by Jesus, empowered by Jesus, were showing up not just to deliver the word of Jesus, but to represent him. Jesus understood this so much so that when he sent his disciples out in Luke chapter 10, he sends them out to preach repentance for the kingdom of heaven was was at hand. He he also told them to, to go and exercise demons and to heal the sick. So he gives them word and power. And here's what he says in Luke chapter 10, verse 16. As he's speaking to his disciples, the apostles, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus is saying that I will be so closely associated with the work that you will be doing as my apostles that to reject you will be to reject me. To accept you will be to accept me. However you are treated, it's as if they are treating me that way. And however I am treated, it's as if you are treating my heavenly father that way. And so through Acts, particularly chapter 9, we see the calling upon Paul's life, directly called, directly commissioned, equipped, and empowered by Jesus, the resurrected Lord that he meets on the Damascus road, to be an apostle. And then Paul articulates that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that that's indeed how he sees himself as an apostle, a messenger, a representative of Jesus Christ to define the gospel appointed by the resurrected Christ himself. And because of the precision of that kind of election and calling, we do not believe that any more apostles exist in that particular way today. No one else defines the gospel. No one else represents Jesus with that kind of close proximity in the way that the disciples did, in the way that the apostle Paul did. And yet, even in the first century, Paul was having to defend his apostolic call. In fact, much of Galatians chapter one is given over to his apostolic defense. And so he writes in chapter one of Galatians that he did not receive it. That is his his apostolic call, his gospel ministry from any man, nor was he taught it. But he says, I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And then he continues on from 12 to verse 16, that that he was preached to deliver in in power to, he was was called rather to preach to the Gentiles. He said that Jesus called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And I did not immediately consult with anyone. See, Paul's self-understanding and the call that he has received from Jesus means that he is careful to associate with others so that the message does not get spoiled by any human influence. He says that there is a purity to the message, there is a purity to my call, and the precision of Paul's call is defined on the Damascus Road, clarified in 1 Corinthians 15, and then defended in Galatians chapter 1. Paul believes that he is called by God, by his grace, for this apostolic ministry to define the gospel, to herald the good news in word and in power. That's what it means to be an apostle. That's what it means to be apostolos. That's what it means to be one in word and power. And therefore, what Paul is doing in Rome is really fulfilling his apostolic ministry. He's fulfilling the ministry that God has placed upon his life directly through Jesus Christ. And what we are to understand about this apostolic call is that it's the foundation of the local church. It's the foundation of the universal church for all of time. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 tells us that the apostolic teachings that we find in the New Testament are indeed the foundation of the church as they herald the identity, the goodness, nature of Jesus Christ. And so this is where we ground ourselves. This is where we find our mission. So to reject the words of the apostle Paul is to reject Jesus. To receive the words of the apostle Paul is to receive Jesus. He says, I am Paul. I have been called by Jesus to be an apostle. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, convicted by his calling upon his life, Paul goes to Rome, rather he writes to Rome about the nature of his apostolic ministry so that they too would know the gospel. That's what begins to take place in Rome. 
He wants them to understand, Paul does, that they are all called in this way, in different measures, in different ways, all called, and his apostolic appointment is meant to direct and give them clarity around this. And so what begins to take place in Rome? We see evidence of this, that by 40 AD, there are about a thousand Christians in the known world. Now think about that. Less than 10 years after the death of Jesus, there are a thousand Christians. That means that less than a tenth of a tenth of a percent, or right around about a tenth of a tenth of a percent of the known world are Christians. 1,000 in the year 40 AD. Now, isn't it true a lot of times that we can feel totally isolated in our faith, as if we are the only ones, especially in a sort of secular prevailing culture like Chicago, in the sort of multiplicity of different worldviews and concepts and ideas that we wrestle with and are faced with every single day. And, and, And yet, Think about what it must have been like. See, because every week we get to gather with other Christians. We get to gather with a number of different followers of Jesus, whether it's through Zoom or when we're in different times, physically, tangibly, visibly, with more Christians than likely most first century Roman Christians even knew. And yet we still feel isolated. So can you even imagine what they must have been growing, going through? And yet what begins to take place it's in such a small number through the apostolic teachings, through this collective idea of sentness, is that the church begins to grow. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Rise of Christianity, documents with with reference to uh, Acts and the documentation of numeric growth, as well as other historical records, that the church, every 10 years starting from 40 AD, begins to grow by 40%. By 40% every 10 years. That means that by 350 AD, there were over 30 million Christians representing over 50% of the population of the known world. It's incredible. Something has happened. Something has taken place. Something has been awakened in the lives of these men and women. They didn't understand Paul simply to just be a single messenger that delivered a word to them in power, but that they were now called and commissioned to deliver the word with power. This was clearly the teaching of the Apostle Paul, that everyone is called, that everyone is sent. Turn to the left if you're still in Romans chapter 12 to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news And they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the work. This is the mission. This is what it means to be a sent people. We have something to say. We have something that has been revealed to us about the nature of this world, about the kingdom of Jesus breaking in, and about Christ himself that we are supposed to go in the spirit of Matthew 28. We are to be witnesses in the spirit of Acts chapter one. We're supposed to all love our neighbors in the spirit of Mark chapter 10. We are all called. My brother, you are called. My sister, you are called. I am called with you. We together as the church called to be sent people in word, but also in power. See, Paul didn't just understand that our collective missional calling was simply to be about what we said, but also the lives that we lived. Turn back to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. See, it's about what we say, about who Jesus is, but it's also about how we live in the manner in which we live and move and have our being. Romans chapter 12, verse nine. (laughs) This is so good. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality. 
Verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not over be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is what it means to live a sent life, not just in what we say, but this is a magnificent call of what it means to to inhabit this calling of sentness. See, we do not simply talk about the gospel. We live in light of the gospel. We live with honor. We live with vulnerability and generosity and sacrifice and faith and trust with lament and with joy, with sacrifice and empathy. And all of this is a participation with God's spirit and and, and in power. This is where real power is, church. True power is in the condescension of self for the sake of God's glory and the benefit of others. This is where real power takes place. And in doing so, I think this is where we can get very hopeless that sometimes we don't always see the effect of our work or the effect of our sacrifice or we grow weary in doing good because we think one day it's all going to go away anyway, that that it just doesn't matter. Uh, N.T. Wright in his fabulous book, Surprised by Hope, written about really the nature of this resurrection life and the kingdom of God that is coming as a result, writes in sort of refutation of that idea, that that presumption that we often have. And he he says ultimately that we should not see our lives and the good works we're called to do and the words that we speak is greasing the tires of of, of the wheels of a wagon that are just going over a cliff to be destroyed. Isn't isn't that true that sometimes we just believe we're doing all of this work, but we're going to die, the world's going to pass away, we're going to go to heaven, and it's not all going to matter. Some people are going to get saved and some are not. We can get really hopeless in that. But what the Lord promises in his word and what I think Wright clarifies really well in this understanding is that what God does with the words and the powerful works that he calls us to do is that he leaves no amount of gospel ministry of sentness wasted. He takes each ounce of sacrifice and challenge and gift and generosity and vulnerability and truth speaking and peacemaking and, tr- and, and truth clarifying and gospel proclamation. He takes all of that and he's weaving together his world back to its righteous order. That's what's going on in the ancient world. That's what's happening in Rome. That's how they're growing by 40% is that God is putting all of these things together for the good of those who are called according to his purposes. So the question may be, why don't we see more of that in our time? Why don't we see more of that in each of our lives, in your life, and in mine. See, when it comes to mission, don't we often think that the reason it doesn't work is because of me? Someone else could say it better. Someone else could live with more distinction. Someone else would be a more worthy representative. I'm not righteous. I'm not as helpful. I'm not as useful. In other words, what keeps us from continually living as sent people is shame, is this preoccupation with self, believing that we are not worthy of the mission that the Lord has called us to. And may I suggest that in order to live sent lives, we must first allow Jesus to rid us of our shame. Because that's the work of this mission. In word and in power, is that through divine love, we see sin and shame and darkness of this world washed away by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We won't live sent until we live unashamed. We will not live sent until we live unashamed. So let's go back to the garden. God goes to Adam and Eve and they have just realized their sin and their nakedness. They they are in their first bout with shame. They've never felt this before. 
And many of us may know that, that, that Genesis is really just this place where God delivers consequence, but, but that is neither the first thing that he does nor the last thing that he does. The first thing that God does when he draws near to Adam and Eve in their sin, in their shame, is that he says, where are you? Where are you? He doesn't call them names. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't rub their sin and their shame and their darkness and their mistake in their face. Perhaps that's our vision of God. He he doesn't do that. What he does instead is he says, where are you? I want to talk to you. You see, proximity for God was not enough. He wanted fellowship. Are you with me? Proximity was not enough for him. He didn't just want to be in their presence. He wanted to be unified. Where are you? Come out of hiding. What are you doing? Why are you in the dark? He calls them out because he loves them. He calls them out because he knows that the light will heal them. He calls them out because he knows he alone can rid them of their shame. No amount of loincloths made of fig leaves or whatever they're hiding behind can cover them. Only he can. And therefore, when they finally step out, he delivers their consequence, but then he clothes them in animal skin. He makes a sacrifice for them. See, this is who our God is, and this is what our God does, is he always says, where are you? And he always clothes us. This is what he does as the sent God, as the God who is on mission. And so in line with Matthew 28 and Acts chapter 1 and Mark chapter 10, Jesus himself then identifies himself as one who has been sent. See, Jesus does not send those to whom first he was not sent to. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus says to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus understood that he was first the sent one. Jesus was the one who drew near to us, not just with a word or not just with an act to perform, but as God in the flesh. You see, he is the true and better Shaliach of the Old Testament. He is the true and better apostle. That's what Hebrews chapter 3 makes really clear. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. You see, Jesus is the one who is truly faithful, as God's representative, as the one who was first sent to us to say, where are you? I want to clothe you. But when Jesus comes, he goes to a cross as the sent one. Not to clothe us us in animal skin, but to clothe us in his righteousness. That's why Paul could write and will uh, write in Romans chapter 3 verse 21, but now a righteousness from God has come, Jesus Christ. See, as Adam and Eve sat in their their sin and shame, we often do. And I think this is often what keeps us from being a people who truly live sent lives. We fail to see that Jesus has come in weakness and service and humility and unto death. And so we continue to sit in this shame and we do not go and tell and we do not go and witness and we do not love our neighbors and we do not do all of the things that Paul has summarized so well in Romans chapter 12 because we don't trust that God has really covered us. You see one more from Dr. Bernay. Shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives, she writes. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And in Christ, he brings what is in the dark out into the light and he heals it. There is no secrecy in Christ. In Christ, he speaks in the middle of our silent and sin. He speaks a better word of hope and of forgiveness. And and in Christ, he, he not only speaks hope, but in Christ, we are judged, but we are also justified by the one who takes our place and dies in our place and for our sin. See, we may not believe that we are worthy to go for God, but God has already counted you worthy for his son to go for you. 
See, we not, may not believe that we are equipped to be sent into the world, but he's already sent us a helper into the world to inhabit us that we might have all that we need in God's spirit. You may not believe that you are called, but literally everything about God tells us that you are. You are called, you are empowered, and you are worthy because of the work of Jesus Christ. You may not have all of the answers, but can I suggest to you, the Apostle Paul did not wait to become perfect. He was waiting to be called. The 12 disciples were not waiting to be perfect. They were waiting to be called. The Roman Christians were not waiting to be perfect. They were waiting to be called. And each one of them called by God to a unique responsibility within God's kingdom project to renew all things. See, I wonder, what if? What if this mission, what if this sentness, what if this is what it means for us to live in light of the gospel? What if mission and living as sent people is much less about telling evil people that they have done evil things and they are going to go to hell when, they're die, when they die, which we often presume that's what evangelism is, that's what being sent is. But what if, what if it's so much better than that? What if? That to be on mission and to be sent people is about helping people who are riddled with shame find their clothes. What, what if living as sent people is about going into all of the world? What if it's about witnessing to the one who can cover you and clothe you and bring you into the light and heal you? What if to be sent people is to be people who do this wonderful work of God's kingdom of drawing near to those who are in shame. To be sure, we have to deal with the brokenness. We have to speak about the evil. We have to speak about whatever has caused the nakedness. You can't help someone put their clothes on if they are acting as though they are covered. But Paul is not writing to condemn Jesus did not come to condemn, but rather Jesus came to redeem. Paul is writing to unify, that the church might be unified around the cross, that they might be effective in the ministry of reconciliation, in particular to Spain and for we all over the world. That's been the point of God's mission from the very beginning, from the garden to the cross, and it will be until heaven and earth are one. God came not to just deliver a consequence, but also to clothe a people. Jesus came not just to preach repentance from sin and against evil, but to die for us, to forgive us, to heal us, and to defeat Satan's sin and death. Paul says that he was a preacher and an apostle, but that was only after he said he came to be a slave and a servant. Then you and I may know the truth of the kingdom, but we are to demonstrate that truth in weakness, service, love, affection, through generosity, through speaking, and in power. We are sent in word and in the authority of Jesus to do the work of ministry. And so Paul introduces himself as a slave and as an apostle. He has authority to speak with the power of Jesus as one directly commissioned by Jesus, but he is not the only one who is called and sent. We all are. We are all called by a God who first came to us. Therefore, even as Jesus says, the Father has sent me, so I I'm sending you. Heavenly Father, help us in this to live as sent people so that the world would know that there is no other name under heaven by which all men must be saved, the name of Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.